0: Welcome back to another episode of B-Wagon with the best music history three group in the game, or at least at Ithaca College. As usual, we have Brandon, Jillian, Ava, and myself, Whitney, here to discuss the question, how did geographic location contribute to the establishment of various New York City music scenes? Let's have Ava start us off.
1: Yeah, okay. So uh, my topic for today is the emergence of folk music, um, specifically in Greenwich Village, New York, uh, which is also my birthplace. Fun fact. Um, by 1962, the village had become the epicenter for growing folk music scene due to a few historical factors of the past. Um, at the time, the music industry was between Elvis and the Beatles, but there's a strong desire present for the birth of a new sound. Uh, The sound of folk was made possible and prominent in the village due to the beat movement of the 50s, which was categorized by an alienation from all things square, an adoption of jazz fashion, uh, mannerisms and dialect, and an emphasis on personal release and purification through the use of uh, drugs, jazz, sex, or the practice of Buddhism. This movement left behind several smaller music venues and hangouts for budding folk artists to display their work with the tightness intimacy of the space, contributing to the feeling of a tight-knit nah, <laughs> full community. Although the full community within the village is fairly exclusive to the outside world, its significance on the macro scale came from its combination of two key movements, um, civil rights and peace. The geography of the village contributed significantly to the closeness of its community. Within five blocks of each other were um, famous clubs such as the Purple Onion, the Night Owl Cafe, Cafe What? The Gaslight, the Kettle of Fish, Cafe Figaro, The Bitter End, The Other End, and the epicenter a few blocks away over on Mercer Street, um, Gerd's Folk City hosted Bob Dylan's first public performance. Um, Folk City also helped launch the careers of Peter, Paul, and Mary, Judy Collins, uh, Jose Feliciano, Phil Ox, John Phillips, and Lou Gossett, Jr., among others, as well as hosting seasoned veterans such as Pete Seeger and apparently my neighbor, Dave Von Ronk. I lived with him, apparently, in the village, says my parents. <laughs> but, so, another fun fact. <laughs> the Village folk scene placed an emphasis on community togetherness and fighting for social change. As community member Sam Charter states, The folk scene was a way of approaching our society. Yes, we sang folk songs, but it was part of an opening to what made life exciting at that moment. We were all committed in one way or another. How many demonstrations did we go to to get Pete Seeger on TV? It was all part of the view that America should change. We didn't sing on top of Old Smokey because it was a great song. We sang it because we wanted change.
2: Ava, I really liked um, how you uh, mentioned that you um, grew up with um somebody who was actually um making music during this time period because um it really shows like uh how actually tight-knit this community is and how you know just like growing up in greenwich village you were already being exposed to that community right
1: um, yeah i mean i i didn't know any of this sorry i cut you off (laughs) i didn't know any of this but i I showed my project to my parents because they're very attached to the village. It feels like people who kind of move to the village like to stay and have a strong connection to it. And clearly this guy um, came to the village in like the sixties to start his full career and was still there in 1999 when I was born. So I think that people there um, really find a community and, and want to stay with it.
2: Yeah, definitely. So, um... I'm going to start talking a little bit about um, the rise of punk in uh, Lower Manhattan. So uh, coming into the 70s, New York City's punk scene was beginning to take shape as an electrified and explosive response to Lower Manhattan's folk revival of the 60s. Two nightclubs which played significant roles in the development of the scene were Max's Kansas City and CBGB. Max's Kansas City was located at 213 Park Avenue South, just north of Union Square and about 10 blocks north of Washington Square Park. One frequent patron of Max's Square City was Andy Warhol, who was not only an influential artist of the time, but was producer and manager of the experimental rock band, The Velvet Underground, who performed at Max's regularly. Um, Some other regular performers included Iggy Pop, David Bowie, Alice Cooper, and the New York Dolls, who were a heavy influence later on the Ramones. Um, Patty Smith was also a regular customer and occasional performer. Um, while Max's cultivated the glittery, hairy, high-heeled glam rock scene, CBGB served as home to a more stripped down and alternative element of musicians. Um, residing at 315 Bowery in the East Village, CBGB was much farther downtown than Max's but was still within 10 blocks of Washington Square. Originally intended as a bluegrass country blues venue, hence the name, CBGB quickly transformed into a breeding ground for local original bands such as the Ramones, Television, Patti Smith Group, Talking Heads, and Blondie, whose lead singer Debbie Harry actually worked as a waitress at Max's Kansas City. Um, CBGB supported the DIY ethic of punk with its two house rules, bands must move their own gear, and no cover bands allowed. Other than that, CBGB was um, pretty liberal both on stage and off, which supported the rebellious anti-establishment attitudes of punk culture. These attributes of the punk ethic can be seen as rooted in earlier social and musical history of lower Manhattan, in the political activism and bohemian lifestyle of the 60s. Even housing exhibits um, evidence of punk's DIY ethic, as uh, artists started inhabiting the industrial lofts of Soho for cheap and spacious housing. Um, here's Patty Smith's description of photographer Robert Maplethorpe's loft on Bond Street from her autobiography, Just Kids. It was a cobblestone side street with garages, post-Civil War architecture, and small warehouses that was now coming to life as these industrial streets will when pioneer artists scrub. Clear out and scrape the years from wide windows and let in the light. So this depiction gives us insight into the creative force behind Punk's DIY ethic, which permeated the entire community of downtown artists at the time.
1: As John Molina would say, I didn't want to throw you off your rhythm, but uh, <laughs> I uh, I have a, a a decent amount to say about the punk and diy scene in the village in the 80s because my weirdly enough my parents were also part of that um that's actually where uh my parents met was at a um an industrial uh rock concert um i can't remember the venue but it was in the village so (laughs) that it was a big part of their relationship always has been i sent jillian a few pictures of my mom from back in the day um she was really a fan of the DIY aesthetic she was making her own clothes and everything um I think that uh the folk culture really influenced um the ability for DIY to take off as successfully as it did um especially actually this last part about um the housing uh, the emphasis of kind of just scraping by um the emphasis of living in a uh, Kind of scrappy areas, um, lower quality apartments and everything. Um, That was a big part of the folk scene as well. Uh, Communities were close-knit because they were often helping each other, making meals, bringing them over, Um, things like that. It's all about a community. It's kind of weird because DIY is very anti-establishment and like anti-group, but they created a group within themselves of people who are anti-group. So it's kind of like a contradiction of itself, but um, yeah, make no mistake, they definitely needed each other in order to get by, which is very similar to the folk culture of the 60s.
0: I think that's so cool how you like connected how anti-group they were but also like what a community it is as well because I just think this is so cool to learn about because I'm really into like much uh, newer and modern uh, punk music and how that has developed and so that sense of community is still there that kind of grew from these roots and I think that's just so cool because it's just a totally different feeling going to a concert like this and just instantly connecting with everyone around you. Like, it's so, it's just such a unique feeling, but also it's just such a close connected feeling every time you go to these sort of events and knowing that it originated like this as well and that tradition has still been able to be kept. I just think that's really awesome. So, for my part, it's time to get groovy with my little history lesson on disco. Disco music started in the late 60s and early 70s from Black and Latino origins. It grew in popularity by being played in underground parties by the LGBTQ plus community in New York City. A center for the emergence of popularity of disco music from the LGBTQ plus parties to the public eye was Studio 54 in New York City. Located at 254 West 54th Street, Studio 54 was a disco nightclub that grew from a very diverse history. Studio 54 started in 1927 as the Gallo Opera House, which then became a studio for CBS in 1954. However, in 1977, college roommates Steve Rebell and Ian Schrager opened a nightclub in that building and called it Studio 54. Fun fact, Rebelle and Schrager were not too far from us here in Ithaca because they went to Syracuse University. The disco club was extremely extremely popular due to the opening being at the peak of popularity of disco music. When the club became popular, they had no issue excluding anyone who wasn't an elite celebrity at the time. Rebelle and Schrager worked with an entrepreneur in the fashion industry named Carmen D'Alessio to bring the most popular and glamorous celebrities to the club. They were able to have celebrities frequent the club, such as Andy Warhol, Liza Minnelli, Bianca Jagger, and politicians such as Margaret Trudeau. The club was wildly successful due to the list of celebrity names attending, but also performing there, such as Donna Summer, Grace Jones, and Gloria Gaynor. The club itself, despite having several live artists artists perform, was more for pre-recorded music that was popular at the time. The allure of the club was due to the glamour and prestige of the setting and the people involved rather than any debuts of music. On February 4, 1980, the last party in the club was called The Ending of Modern Day Gamora. That was the end of the disco club in Studio 54. However, like Gloria Gaynor said back in the disco era, I will survive and so did the legend of Studio 54. The name Studio 54 lives on as the name of that building, which is now used for Broadway shows for Roundabout Theater Company, a restaurant and nightclub called Feinstein slash 54 Below, and a Sirius XM radio station called Studio 54 Radio.
1: Yeah, um, I just, I don't know, as I was listening to this, I, I think it's so interesting, um, because the uh, subgroups that, that Jillian and I were talking about were very anti popularity. Um, the more mainstream you became, the more blocklisted you were from the genre itself. Because the goal was to stay in these many these many clubs and CBGBs and, um, in the downtown uh, small clubs that were made possible by the, the beat movement. Um, the goal was to stay local and to not branch out. And um, everything was very focused in that time. It was all about New music, new artists, everybody being discovered. Everyone can have a voice. Um, I just think it's so interesting that you have such a complete opposite um, turn here with uh, with mostly it being pre-recorded and them trying to get in big names into these clubs that are already established to gain popularity, um, which was very much not the goal of folk or punk music. Um, so I don't know. I think it's interesting to have a little. Different difference of goals, I guess I will say, in these three subgroups.
2: Yeah, um, Ava, that was actually the same thing that stood out to me that I was going to mention was um, how how um, how just stark of a difference there is between these um, these two music cultures, um, especially the elitism in Studio Fifty Four um, is such a different um, type of community that was than uh, what was cultivated you know, in like, um, really uh, intimate spaces like uh, CBGB. But, um, you know, both of them managed to uh, become really well known just, you know, through different ways that they um, brought people together, I guess.
3: Cool. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, So I'm going to do um, get into hip hop. And uh, kind of like what the scene was like, um, when it first like came about and like some of the early characters that were pretty big in there. Um, also, most of this was based off of um, a hip-hop revolution exhibit um, of exhibit at the Museum of uh, the City of New York, which I think is a pretty interesting long name. Um, but what this is based off of is a, is an MSNBC um, article or interview that was interviewing two people that were there specifically. So I thought it was really interesting to just like take everything that I know because I didn't really know anything about hip hop. So just everything I'm learning, I'm learning straight from the people that were literally there at the beginning, um, right out of their mouth. So I thought that was really cool. So anyway, um, in the exhibit, there were three photographers, um, Joe Conzo, who was one of the people that was interviewed, Martha Cooper and Jeanette Beckman, um, who all documented these fantastic like party scenes and other hip hop aesthetics of the actual time um, before it blew up into like a really big like worldwide sensation. Um, so if we go to the interview, it features Joe Conzo, who was there at the time. He was kind of just like a party goer, but he was also photographing these events. And he would talk about how, um, you know, like he didn't know how like crazy his photographs were going to like turn out and how like well um, documented, uh, how how useful the photographs would actually be to document such a thing. And then the other big person there was uh, they referred to him as Hip Hop Grandmaster Kaz, which I think is a pretty rad name to have um but anyway so when konzo is asked um you know how how did he describes it he uh he describes it and you can just tell when he's talking he's just feeling full of nostalgia um bringing him back to a time when he used to have fun and it was just like it was just parties this is like one of the things that i thought was really interesting when they stressed it um was that it really wasn't like the geography of it wasn't like like a lot of um what we talked about beforehand with with the other styles. It was um, very, they didn't have like, they may have had places that they normally went, but they weren't like buildings that they normally went to. They weren't um, like studios or anything like, or anything like that. It was kind of just like, all right, we're in the neighborhood. We all want to have our, um, our Friday and Saturday like party. We're going to go out and party and we're just going to meet together and we're going to, we're going to jam and we're going to have fun. And then we're just going to leave and come back next week, which I thought was a really interesting, um, really interesting, just, uh, what's it called? Perspective and like look at it, um, but so further off when he's describing the scene, um, he just does it in a in a very simple manner, um, which just attempts I think how not commercial or unofficial it really was at the time, um, which uh, Kaz gets into this later. But Konzo also talks about how um, he was emphasizing that you know bling wasn't part of it, which comes to be like kind of the way we might think about it today. Um, record deal, deals weren't a part of it. It was literally just people coming to jam, have fun, and that that was that. Um, so when they started asking Kaz, what like you know what he was thinking about it, he said that he was actually surprised to learn that the rest of the world was actually um like like the, this hip hop their culture was like blowing up and the rest of the, her- the world was like really picking up on it. And he was like, "Wow, maybe we should start taking it a little more seriously." <laughs> I was just like, you know, that's a really interesting. Um, just way of looking at it just like they weren't taking it seriously it was just so not like really not like planned out but it was just it's just it was just so not like a serious thing for them it was just them having fun um so then he spoke about um hip hop and how it was in the early 70s for them he defined it as a cultural movement and as a reinvention of an energy that's existed since the beginning of time um he then goes on to describe hip hop and then is something that was made up of rap music uh djing graffiti and b-boying which is actually re- commonly um and incorrectly referred to as break dancing which is not something that i was aware of so that is a very good thing to know um and he acknowledges that the uh, rap element of hip-hop is what took off the most when it was being commercialized because it was the most easy thing to be monetized you couldn't ma- monetize the other parts of it but according to kaz who was one of the progenitors of it To have hip-hop you need rap music djing graffiti and b-boying like that's what hip-hop actually is Um, which i mean when it's coming from the person one of the people that was there at the beginning i mean you can't really deny it Um, and just like to kind of like close it off if there was like just one thing that i thought was just you know really to understand is that the mainstream interpretation of hip-hop is pretty far removed from the way from the humble origins that it had um, really just as like community parties that fostered Pretty much just a cultural movement of self-expression as well as just a simple want to just have a little fun at the end of the week which i think also ties back into what you were saying ava with like you're just like you've are either related your parents were actually there in places or someone lived next to you that was actually there which i think helps also understand that you know i think i think when we look back at these things we, we kind of see can see it as like almost a surreal thing or like, maybe it's not, it's just, we look at back at it and it's just like, you know, it's, it's not like based in reality, but it's just like, no, like these things like actually happened. Like there was realistic people. Like they weren't like, you know, mythical figures or something. There was someone that was literally just living next door. Like, there you go. Like that's, that's it. And I think that's something that's really important to remember on like you just origins like this, which I think is just, that's what actually got me was just like how they looked at it, how they viewed it how they viewed it and who they actually were and who were they? They're just normal people. They're just like, <laughs> they weren't anyone specifically special. They're just normal people.
2: Yeah. And that's like the ultimate example of like how, um, geography plays into, um, the rise and establishment of all these music scenes is that, uh, literally, you know, everybody knows each other and they live like right across the street from each other. So like, you know, it was just, um, you know the effect of all of these people being in the same place and you know experiencing the same things like socially and politically that you know sort of inspired the same um creative um vibes and um it was just the effort of all of these people coming together and you know expressing themselves
1: yeah there's such an importance on community in in all of these examples and um something i just wanted to point out was how grateful i was for the emphasis on um getting first person accounts um on this project um like brandon emphasized i think it's just so important to actually hear like a real human being who has a name like talk about their experiences because yes all of these movements were so about the now but these people have these memories and there's such a feeling of nostalgia Um, throughout all of these, um, throughout the interviews I was reading for Folk, um, you know, talking to my mom about the punk scene. um, Just, it seemed like being in the now in that moment um, meant so much to them. And it still does to this day. It seems like um, for these people, starting these movements um, and being able to be a part of a tight community like this just sticks with them forever. And it seems like the glory days to them. And I think that's really, really incredible to have people actually documented saying things like this because of modern technology. We can actually, like, reach out to these people and have conversations. I think that's so special and something that definitely differentiates this project from others that we've done
0: in the past that wraps up our podcast for today thank you all so much for listening to the end of the podcast and i hope you learned a lot and enjoyed it as well because i know we did be sure to tune in next time for another music history topic on b-wagon